Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Today we look at some adverse drug reactions that come up in everyday practice. What's your approach to prescribing nitrates and sildenafil? We speak to the author of a research paper that found co-prescribing is surprisingly common, despite them being contraindicated. And what about neuropsychiatric side effects of Montelukast? How common does a side effect need to be for you to have to tell your patients about it before prescribing? I'm Tom Nolan, a GP and clinical editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined as ever by Jenny and Navjoy. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor, GP in New Zealand, and clinical editor for the BMJ. Uh, and uh, Navjoy, hi. Hi, my name's Navjoit Lada. I'm a clinical editor and locum GP in London. So I think this is like a an experiment to see if anyone listens to the episode or, or whether they they will listen regardless. Because uh, I think usually we, we we don't get that excited about drug reactions, or, or, or do you, Jenny? Are you are you kind of you know does your your mind stop working when somebody mentions that, or are you quite into it? <laughs> I have I have had conversations about adverse drug reactions though. Uh, including with someone who was coming in for a zoledronic acid infusion. So um, they had kind of low bone density and um, there's a big focus on kind of the flu-like symptoms that are associated with the infusion. But all I could remember from medical school was the osteonecrosis of the jaw. (laughs) And I was like, I really need to make sure I tell you about these flu-like symptoms so that you continue to take Panadol and don't get worried. And it's COVID times, but all I could think about was how how much do I want to scare this this patient with like your jaw is going to start rotting from the inside. Um, so, so I have been thinking about it recently, actually. I feel like we should um, just make sure that, that that ended okay. That that consultation did did you. Uh, <laughs> With it, the patient is fine. They're they fine. are doing great. But that's a good example, isn't it? Like I think some guidance says before starting any, you know, bisphosphonates, people should see their dentist and, and just check. But I don't know. I don't think that is routinely done. And how do you know whether you should be saying that to everyone or not? Because it does depend, from my experience, on where you look and whether you copy what other people do, which is, in general, I think, not to say that. Yeah, it's kind of it was kind of a question for me of how far does informed consent go? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a person who had talked about it before with, you know, one of their doctors at my practice and um it it, it had actually been planned pre-covid and postponed this whole time and so clearly they'd had a lot of time to think about it and they were provided patient information and so I was kind of sitting there like preparing them to you know, that I had to sign the consent forms with them yeah. and really wondered, is is this even appropriate for me to raise at this point? Yeah, and yeah. how important is this reaction that they need to know about it? Yeah. It reminds me, uh, at the moment, uh, at least where I'm practicing, there's a lot of people coming in to talk about HRT. Um, I don't know if that's the case in New Zealand, because we, we've had this huge um, increase in awareness. Shortage. thanks. Well, shortage, plus an increase in awareness, thanks to some... TV programs, the Davina McCall program and, and other things. Um, and I feel like I feel like that's shifted some, somewhat the conversation you have about, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe it hasn't. Navjot, you can maybe help me out here. But would you find yourself saying 
more about the, the pros and cons, the side effects, the potential risks, which I think we pro- probably used to talk more about the risks and now we're talking less about the risks, I think more about the benefits. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a shift I've seen where the conversation has become more from like, oh, this is, you know, this is quite serious to, oh, you know, these are some of the harms that have been studied, but these are the benefits that we know about. So, yeah, there's been that kind of subtle shift in the conversation. But I think what I I guess the challenge and I think what you're both kind of referring to is like we we don't know what's going to matter to an individual patient when um, talking about medication. And so it does become quite hard to judge, you know, and patients will often go and read the leaflet when they're prescribed something and there's no kind of um, sense of scale in those like lists of symptoms that you might experience. And so I think it is, you know, it, it does feel like a a sort of responsibility and quite a quite a challenging one I think to kind of judge that in the consultation you know when you're having a conversation about starting a medication um to kind of figure out um what are mm. the important ones and actually try and work out with the patient what what they want to cover as well I find that quite hard yes particularly when time and maybe more appointments are such a premium at the moment yeah um, <clears throat> yeah, you'd like to have say, oh, let's have an appointment or two or three appointments, even depending on the the problem or the, the medication, yeah. to work through these things to to get to that point. Yeah, but there's such pressure. There's it's, it's tempting to almost I don't want to say cut corners, but I think that's what happens. I think yeah, I think you might be right, and also just in terms of the kind of I don't know, not to think of a com- consultation as having a kind of. I don't know, like a narrative arc, but that had the decision to prescribe something and handing over a prescription often feels like the end, but actually it's often the beginning and that can be mm. quite kind of um, sort of mindset shift as well. Yeah. Well, the beginning of the end. <laughs> but, uh, I'm not sure I'd phrase it that way to the patient. But, <laughs> but um, I mean, the other interesting thing about all of this is one of the things I wonder about is how much you know, like all this research into things like the nocebo effect and that sort of thing, You, I, I always wonder about like how, to what extent are you kind of queuing up the experience of some of these symptoms? And um, and so I often think about that. And I mean, it wouldn't stop me from bringing something up, but I, I always kind of worry at the back of my mind that, you know, say if, um, I'm starting someone on SSRIs and, and would, you know, would those... I don't know. I'm not, not to kind of gaslight people and say, you know, you're not experiencing this like abdominal pain or whatever it is that you're experiencing with these medications. But I don't know that that I sometimes think about that too. I think about that all the time. So it's, I'm comforted that someone else does, <laughs> uh, but it doesn't get get any. Um, no, nobody really talks about it, do they? That hap- that comes across in a ton of consultations for me as well, particularly around contraception. Um, I think people are so much more aware of the adverse side effects of contraception now, not only in terms of potential long-term risks, but mostly in terms of current kind of changes in mood, hair loss, libido. Um, What else do people really worry about? You know, I think in particular, um, and I know we touched on this in our episode about IUDs, but um, tons of people kind of coming in saying, or or saying that they think there's a correlation between a certain symptom and their um, Mirena IUD. Mm. And it's really tricky to figure out, 
is this a potential side effect of that medication when so many possible things could be going on with a hormonal medication versus other possible contributing factors? Yeah. Yeah. See our episode on contraception and the pill ladder for those who haven't listened. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, this kind of cues up, I think, our interviews um, really, really well. So thank you. And I thought we weren't going to have anything to say about adverse drug reactions. So, yeah, I, I think uh, you're selling adverse drug reactions a bit short, Tom. I think um, oh, right. I think they're more interesting yeah. than you're making out. <laughs> I think I just think of them as like annoying pop-ups when you're trying to prescribe something. Oh, they, and... I mean, they definitely are that as well. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's totally fair. So the first of our interviews... Um, comes about from a really interesting paper that was in another journal that was looking at co-prescribing of nitrates and Viagra. The author of that, or the lead author of that paper, will kind of explain more. But um, you know, this is something I think you learn quite early on in med school, isn't it, that you, you kind of don't do that. So really interesting to see that it happens and to think about why it happens. And maybe I'll ask you later whether whether you would do that yourself. Or maybe I'll ask you now. Do you do, you do that at the moment? Would you ever do that? Uh, Jenny, you're shaking your head. I... Do you know what? I don't think I do this, but I, the fact that you're raising this makes me just think about how many of these possible kind of drug, drug interactions that I have completely forgotten about. And if not for some of those pop-ups sometimes, I mean, Mm -hmm. I just think there's just a, there's as the universe of pharmaceutical products expands, there are so many potential interactions to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah, and the pop-ups are great for that, aren't they? But, but they're also <laughs> annoying because I think they're set to, you know, literally everything gets a pop-up. So I think yeah. you, you, kind of, you kind of switch off, which is um, kind of the opposite of what you should be doing. Um, Navjoy? I don't think this? I do, but it's definitely something that, you know, often people who are on nitrates, you know, if you're on lots of anti-anginals or whatever, are the same people who come in requesting these medications. So that can mm. be quite challenging um, to sort of say... Actually, you know, this is this is a problem because often, you know, erectile dysfunction is a very difficult symptom to to live with. Yeah. Okay. Well, should we get? Let's hear from uh, Anders Holt, who was the lead author for, for this paper, and uh, he'll tell us more. I'm uh, I'm Anders Holt. Uh, from Denmark, and I'm I'm at the Copenhagen University Hospital, Hallo Gentofte. Am I am I a PhD candidate? Okay. The well, the idea for the study was actually, as I tend to say, I say every medical student, uh, every doctor, everybody knows that this these two drugs does not go well together. Uh, even Hollywood knows. There's a movie, Something's Gotta Give, where um, it's a romantic comedy and it's with Jack Nicholson and Keanu Reeves and Meg Ryan I believe uh, and there's, there's a, a clip in the beginning uh, where suddenly Jack Nicholson uh, feels some tenderness of his chest area uh, while he was uh, getting down to business with a, with a young woman and he's rushed to the hospital and uh, it, it might be a heart attack and Keanu Reeves the doctor asks him uh, well, I would like to start you on a nitro drop, but it's important that you tell me if you've had any Viagra. Uh, and well, we know that he probably has, but he won't. He won't admit to it, so he says, "No, no, 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 no Viagra, no." Uh, and then, okay, the reason I ask is that if I, 
if I start this strip and you had Viagra within the last few hours, it might be fatal. And then he has to admit to it. It's to just the, the notion that even Hollywood filmmakers knows that this is not a good combination because interactions is not something we talk about much. Uh, there are interactions with a lot of drugs and uh, most of them we don't even know. And, and, uh, and it's, it's hard to investigate whether it's, it's super clinically relevant because it's already been established through a great pharmacological clinical research uh, studies that the, if you take them together, the blood pressure drops by a lot. Uh, if you take them at the same time, it drops by 40 or, or, 40 or 50 millimeters. Uh, um, and that's a lot. And from that, you, we've kind of extrapolated that it's probably dangerous. Uh, so let's not do that. If you're caught doing that, medical legally, you know, as a doctor, you're not in a good place, are you? If, um, if everybody knows that there's, there's this interaction, you, you'd be... And then we know that... Um, this is a very long flying, I know. But we know that erectile dysfunction there. is... Uh, the prevalence is increasing, or the incidence, and I don't know if it's because people get sicker or it's just becoming less and less taboo, and I think actually the, the latter uh, accounts for a lot of it. Um, all these patients on nitrates, are they really not prescribed uh, Viagra? Or should they really be you know, not allowed to be prescribed Viagra? Um, so we wanted to, to investigate both. Uh, how are these drugs prescribed together? Are they at all? And is it, and we, we kind of had a feeling that they are, prob they are probably, uh, and it, it's an, at an increasing incidence. Uh, and is it dangerous? Uh, do these uh, patients who are prescribed both drugs at the same time, do they end up in a hospital more than those who do not? So what did you find then in terms of the, the co-prescribing? What, what were the main findings there? So for, for everybody, uh, Viagra prescription is going up. I think it was a 12, 12-fold increase uh, from uh, comparing 2000 to 2018. And then we looked at uh, ischemic heart disease patients on nitrates. We don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know for sure, but we did what we could to, to make sure that these patients were on nitrates. And then we, saw, we, we looked at how, how much are, the, are these patients then prescribed Viagra. And that was increasing a lot as well. And back in 2000, they were almost... No, no one. Um, but, well, 18 years later, it was increased 20-fold. And we ended up at, it's, it's a kind of a weird measure, but in, in 2018, 20 claimed prescriptions per 100 persons per year. Um, and then, then we, yeah, we tried to associate this picking up a prescription of Viagra while on nitrates. Uh, did that translate into a... Uh, a hospital visit, um, right? And and it seemed like that we we, did, we could not find any indication or association uh, that 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 recent Viagra prescription claiming was uh, associated to to anything dangerous. And we used we used fourteen days. We tried with seven days. We tried with twenty one days and twenty eight days because we didn't quite know when you buy your Viagra. We assumed that you want to use it soon. But do you use it tomorrow or do you use it in 21 days? We don't quite know. And the way to get around that was just to, well, let, let's just do them all or do, do a lot of analysis and see if we find anything. And uh, we pretty much found the same thing uh, all the way through. And that, that's so no basically connection two, then. No connection. Yeah. Uh, no connection. And the two, yeah, so the two main findings co prescription has gone up by quite a lot. Mm. Uh, but we couldn't find any association between 
being co-prescribed these drugs and uh, any serious yeah. adverse events. And in your discussion of that, um, yeah, you, one possible conclusion you might draw is that you know Danish doctors. This is this is in Denmark, wasn't it? But maybe, maybe Danish doctors are you know don't, aren't as uh, <laughs> I kind of put this. I'm being a bit blasé, like you say, they just got used to this risk and just are prescribing, and and actually there isn't a risk, but it might not be that, might it? There might there might be some other maybe more likely conclusions. No, and that, uh, it's always important to me here to, yeah. to point out that from now on, I'm just speculating. Yeah. I have no idea. I cannot back this up with data. I wouldn't want to claim that it's not dangerous to take po- both drugs at the same time. That's pretty well documented that it, it's a bad idea. I had like four, four possible explanations. A possible explanation could be, okay, your blood pressure drops, you lie down, it blows over, Maybe you tell your general practitioner about it the next day. Maybe you don't, but it never really amounts to anything dangerous. And anything uh, general practitioner related, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, catch in, my, in, in the registers. Then I had an idea that uh, perhaps, or, and I actually found a reference that most Viagra use is in the afternoon, evening. Uh, and um, most people take their anti-anginal medicine of the nitrates in the morning. And then actually, uh, depending on which, uh, which nitrate you take, uh, two, maybe three half times passes, then maybe the concentration is, has decreased enough that the, that the interaction is not clinically relevant. Mm. I think, and I'll, I, let's give the doctors some credit, I think that most doctors are aware that this is a bad idea. So they tell you their patient, I can see you're on nitrates, that's great. If you want to use this Viagra, you need to pause for at least 24 hours, maybe even 48. There are not super good guidelines on, on this, what, what kind of recommendation you should, you should make. But I think the American Heart Association has one where they say 24 hours for, for, the, yeah, for one and 48 hours for, for, for the other one, depending on how, how quickly it's metabolized. Yeah, well, they, that was a nice example, wasn't it? Like this, like we were saying earlier, that this is something people know about. But it's interesting, isn't it, that a twelve-fold increase in in Denmark between two thousand and two thousand eighteen in co-prescribing. Um, so that was interesting, wasn't it? Uh, but also that they couldn't find from from the data they were looking at any any increased risk of it was it was a sort of composite outcome of various kind of cardiac events um, as you know in those patients. So. Um, yeah, it's kind of surprising. Are you surprised by that? Listening to Anders speak, um, I thought it was really interesting for a number of reasons, but I was thinking um, that it's amazing what we can do with kind of data set linkage these days. I was so impressed that not only did they look at the co-prescribing, but then also trying to look at you know, linking that to uh, hospital visits at all of those different time intervals. I have to say, I did wonder, based on one of his hypotheses, whether if they had looked at primary care data, we would have seen anything. Like maybe, as he suggested, there might have been an increase in visits for dizziness or chest pain or, you know, whatever. That would have been interesting to look at, but of course there are so many other things that go into those symptoms. It's difficult to be so specific on it, but you know, um, I think as 
I think Viagra has just become so much more common and so much more, you know, I don't know, just like an accepted part of culture and in some ways potentially aging that it do- I mean, the finding does not surprise me. Mm. And it's not that not hard to, to get Viagra knots from your doctor. And, and I guess if you really wanted it, you wouldn't, you'd answer no to the question about taking nitrates or, um, so I can imagine that lots of people who take nitrates will also take Viagra and, you know, that just happens whether, whether it's from a prescription from, from me as a GP or, or, or someone else. I think it's one of the ones where you, you have a chat with the pharmacist. So it's right. behind, it's behind the counter, but um, yeah, they'll, that, yeah, they'll, um, you, you don't need a prescription. So it's really interesting to hear that it's not necessarily that the two drugs are, are, are safe to take together. In fact, I think he was very much cautioning that that, that is still a really bad idea to, to, pres- well, to prescribe these in a way which would say, it's fine, there's been this study that shows there's no link. Not saying that at all, but, but perhaps as a way to co-prescribe in a safe way um, or a safer way after having a conversation with a patient which explains the, the, you know, the risks and you know, the benefits because I think as, as doctors we're sometimes a bit like, you can't have the, the Viagra, the one thing that's going to really make a difference to you because, you know, because I, I, I know that this is a, a contraindication. So um, maybe there is a window there. And, I, and I, like you said, there is some guidance. And I think that is a weakness here is that without good guidance to back you up, um, it's hard to, to, to do that. But I think there are some guidance from the US which do suggest some intervals where it'd be safe to, to prescribe the two. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think it does it does make me nervous the idea of doing that, but I think that it it sort of highlights this kind of um area, you know, how how Anders was saying that, you know, because this um interaction is so well described and so well established, there hasn't really been a lot of research looking into well what happens if people do do take it together as they invariably are doing according to this study. Um and so that would be it's a shame we don't, yeah, we don't sort of know more about about those effects. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's such an important point that, you know, maybe there are sort of ways forward to kind of navigate some of these interactions that are helpful for patients um, dealing with, you know, things that are making their quality of life worse. Yeah, well, should we, I feel like we, we could take a little break from drug reactions and interactions. Um because uh, we've got our second half of that coming up. But um, do you remember that episode we did on great explanations? Oh, yeah. V- vintage uh, deep breath in um, <laughs> earlier this year. Um, and we asked for, um, well, we, we t- talked about how important explanations can be or useful or even interesting they can be in, in a consultation uh, and asked for people, listening, listeners to to get in touch. And actually somebody did. And so we have a little um, snippet now from a, a listener who told us about their great explanations. Uh, so um, shall we have a listen to that? Oh, yay. Yeah, let's do it. So this is a clip from Sophie Newton, a, a GP and deep breath in listener, uh, and she'll tell us about her own great explanations. Hi, I'm Sophie Newton. I am a part-time salary GP in Halifax, West Yorkshire. 
things for us at the practice are not too bad at the moment, I think. I, I feel like our patients have got really on board with e-consultation and telephone triage, which is making a big difference to how we're managing demand. Um, but I do really enjoy seeing my patients face to face, though. Often it is nice to have a quick natter and a catch up in person. When I'm not at work, I am a very busy mum of three children and two dogs, and I do enjoy staying as fit as I can manage, as well as um, playing my daily dose of Wordle. In what spare time I have, I create short patient information videos on YouTube that we send out to patients via AccuRx. It was my husband who um, was the inspiration behind the videos. He's a TV director, so very handily, he films, directs and edits these videos. And actually, we do enjoy collaborating on them. I wanted to create the videos to, because I think partly because I was getting a bit bored of repeating myself over and over again with certain topics and also just was finding 10 minutes just isn't enough time to share as much information as I would like. So some of the videos are especially helpful to send prior to a consultation such as one on menopause and HRT to make sure that patients are armed with enough information and can also have a think about it before we have the consultation. Some of the videos are useful for cementing advice and safety netting. So we've got one, for example, on children's coughs, colds, sore throats and ear infections. And then other videos just give more information than we would usually be able to manage in 10 minutes, um, such as depression and pre-diabetes. We're finding the videos are saving us time and appointments, actually. For example, uh, if I check through blood results now and there's a bit of a high cholesterol, I text them a link to my high cholesterol video and an invitation to get back to us if they would like to discuss this further. There's loads more videos I'd like to film in the future. I already got a few in the pipeline. Um, and GPs from other practices have also found them really useful to share. So I do enjoy knowing that beyond even our surgery, people are finding them helpful. Um, so I think in the future, I hope to create a really useful back catalogue of patient information videos. And perhaps it's another little way to try and make our working lives a little less demanding and a little more fulfilling. Oh, well, that's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, um, I think I can imagine that receiving a video um, would be much more engaging than getting a link to a leaflet and having to wade through all that kind of written information. Yeah, I think particularly if that was a video from your GP, I imagine that would be quite, that could be quite quite a lot more powerful than, oh, there's just some like NHS, you know, website link, which which can sometimes feel a, um, a bit generic. So, so that's that's great. Um, I've had a look at those videos. They're they're great, and we'll put a link on our um, with the show notes uh, to to those videos to the YouTube channel. And thank you, Sophie, for for sending that clip in. Thank you. Um, if anyone other listeners have similar things or other great explanations, or just want to tell us more about the things you're doing in your practice, then please, please um, let us know. Uh, practice at bmj.com. <laughs> Okay, so let's go on to our final clip now, which is uh, back to adverse drug reactions, and this time to the author of a, an article in the BMJ about um, Montelukast and the various adverse drug reactions that, that can happen, particularly neuropsychiatric ones, um, in those taking this drug. Um, so shall we have a listen to, to this um, from Corinne Eckhart? Um, but that'll come up after this from our sponsor. 
When you're a GP, you're not just 9 to 5. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now let's go back to the interview with Corinne Eckhart about Monte Lucast. Hello, I'm Corinne Eckhart and uh, I'm a pharmacist and I work at the Netherlands Pharmacophilia Centre LARAP. And uh, at LARAP we uh, identify risks associated with the use of medicines in daily practice. And we receive uh, safety reports of medicines. Uh. Okay, so and, and that's how you came to, to, to know about uh, Montelukast and... Um, write this article for the BMJ, which outlined um, some of those adverse events. So can you tell us, um, maybe start with a bit generally about Montelukast and and its place in, in medicine, how much we, we're using that at the moment? Um, yes, uh, well, uh, Montelukast is um, uh, indicated for the treatment of asthma and allergic rhinitis. And uh, uh, in the UK uh, last year, there were... Uh, like uh, more than 3.8 million prescriptions uh, in general practice. Wow, yeah, so a lot, a lot of prescriptions. It's, so what the article goes into is some of the, uh, the possible adverse events, and I suppose I'm aware of some nightmares in children, but, um, but, but probably that's about as far as it would, would have gone before I read the article. So tell us about the, what we know about the adverse events. Uh, yeah, there are uh, mild reactions, such as... Um, uh, nightmare, agitation, uh, irritation, um, but also uh, more severe reactions such as uh, depression, uh, suicidal ideation, uh, aggression, that sort of uh, reactions. Mm. Okay, and and is that um, across all age ranges or children and adults? Or what, in which do we know more about like, who's more affected by, by those? Uh, well, we've looked into uh, what, what was reported at the, the worldwide uh, Fiji base the database um, <clears throat> of um, safety reports. And then we saw that um, aggression and uh, nightmare were more common in children uh, aged 2 to 11 years. And mm. um, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation was more uh, seen in uh, children aged uh, 12 until 17 years. And uh, adults uh, suffered more from insomnia. Mm. Okay. Uh, and... and uh, 
in how, well, in terms of how you study these, so these, these are from reports of people having these reactions and thinking it might be the Monte Luca stand you know, and sending in a, like a yellow card as we have in the UK. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And so can you just give us an insight into how how kind of reliable, how, how do you actually kind of take those and, and come out with a an answer which is, yes, this is definitely related to the drug or now nah, it, it's you know, maybe some correlation or, or coincidence. How, how do you unpick all that? Um, well, yeah, yeah, it is it is um, difficult because a, uh, psychiatric safety concerns with Montelukas have primarily been generated from uh, both these post-marketing uh, safety reports, mm. and uh, they have uh, certain limitations. Uh, there is uh, also, of course, uh, under-reporting. Not every event is reported, but there is also increased reporting. Um, the number of reports is influenced um, by the time a product has been marketed, and Montelukast uh, has been marketed for well, 24 years. Um, mm. And uh, also media attention uh, about an event uh, with this product will influence the number of reports. And um, for Montelukast, in uh, 2008, there were um, the first early re- uh, uh, reports of uh, uh, the FDA. They posted a safety communication and that um, an increase of the reports was seen after that. Right, right. So, it, yeah, so the more the more people, patients and clinicians are aware of something, the more they will notice it. Uh, and and so, so presumably this didn't come through in the original trials for, for the drug. Was that was that because they weren't well conducted or, or what, what happened there? I think neuropsychiatric reactions uh, were seen already with the trials and okay. um, the, also the reports date from 1998 since since the marketing of uh, Montelukas. But mm. um, it was until 2008 that it that that that, uh, that an early communication was um, mm. was written uh, by the FDA okay. because I think it it is also very difficult uh, to untangle whether these neuropsychiatric um, uh, reactions are caused by Montelukas because um, there are also behavioural changes uh, in children uh, during normal development. Um, and, and some of these reactions have a slow onset and offset, uh, which also makes it difficult to assign causality. Because, for instance, a mild reactions such as uh, nightmares, they are more common, and they resolve quickly on stopping the medication. So um, that helps in identifying uh, a causal relationship. But uh, depression is, is rare and much harder to attribute to uh, Montelukas. Mm. Okay, and I guess that makes it hard to take um, practical kind of t- pointers for clinicians, you know, consulting, you know, say, you know, this is an option for you for your asthma. Um, I guess it's easy enough to say, well, in the short term, it might cause X, Y, and Z side effects, you know, um, anxiety or, or nightmares. Um, but longer term, yeah, uh, have you any tips? Obviously, speaking as somebody who's researched this and sort of has a really good sense of of the how common these side effects are and and how sure we can be about causality. Um, has it reached that point? You think where it's it, it would be a responsibility for a clinician to explain these potential side effects at at the point of prescribing. Um, well, I think it's important to to discuss this at the time of prescribing, but uh, say uh, also explain to patients or carers that um, the mild reactions are uncommon and severe reactions are very rare. 
but just that they remain alert uh, throughout the treatment for these reactions so they can mm. um, recognize these uh, reactions early and, and then um, and prevent serious harm uh, from happening. I really appreciated that interview because there is just a whole range of symptoms there that I just would have never necessarily thought of associating with this particular medicine, given its indications. And I really appreciate the point about how sometimes these symptoms can be really difficult to disentangle from other things that are going on in a person's life or in their development. I mean, how often do you guys see insomnia? And do you ever <laughs> do you ever specifically think, oh, are you taking Montelukast? I mean, I, I do tend to ask about medications, but I don't know that that would have clicked for me. Yeah, same, same. I, I think, Tom, you're sort of framing about nightmares in children. That's kind of the extent of what might, you know, the association I, I would, that would immediately spring to mind. But then there's yeah. all this other stuff like, aggression and um yeah uh, depression so all, lots of lots of other symptoms as well i mean the thing that came up for me as well i'm so glad you asked that question tom about the um clinical trials like did the clinical trials not detect these differences and actually it brings up this really important point about harms reporting in clinical trials particularly when this drug was being investigated before there was well, I'm sure there's always been a lot of attention on harms reporting, but it's it's become much more um, scrutinised um, recently. But I was just looking during that interview at um, you know a couple of the clinical trials um, that came out in the late 90s on Montelukast, and the the harms reporting is really kind of um, not great. As in, you know, one just says harms were similar between the Montelukast and placebo group, then proceeds to list them out. But actually the types of harms, you know, while the overall number of um, adverse events may have been similar, actually that there's a very different nature to what they are. And that kind of headline statement belies what they are. So there is something about um, how the data from clinical trials is conveyed that I think is really important um, that, you know, means we might not, you know, we all know that trials are subject to positive spin. Um, and yeah, this is just illustrates that again, I guess. I completely agree with that. I think, I mean, thank you, Navdrite, for bringing that yeah. up. I think that's super important. And, you know, there we've highlighted in a number of different ways across the journal um, issues around, you know, post-authorization research. And I do think that it really falls by the wayside. Like once something has gone through the trials needed to get regulatory approval, it is, it, I think it, there's a tendency to just kind of think that's a done deal. And a lot of these medications do have post-authorization research and kind of side effect, um, you know, accumulation of evidence that, that does happen. And, um, it's a really important issue. Yeah. And I mean, particularly for, particularly for, you know, for something like this, where the um, adverse events we're talking about can be very hard to distinguish from what what might be happening at, like, at that stage of a child's development, then I think you really are reliant on trials rather than 
kind of, you know, the cohort studies that might be done after a drug's approved. I mean, none of that makes us any easier to navigate with patients. I think a lot of the issues we were talking about at the beginning about, you know, how you have these conversations, how you're able to set this in context and give a sense of scale of like, you know, like, I don't know, like two times out of 10 or whatever. I, I don't know, I've just plucked that number out of thin air. Someone might experience these symptoms. I think that kind of presentation of this data is like really what GPs need and patients need to kind of make decisions about about their treatment. And um, I think there are some sources of that for some of our like commonly used medications. I mean, particularly statins, I think, Um we, we have, I think, better data, but, you know, for so much stuff we prescribe, we're just kind of um, having to do our best in, you know, in these short consultations with not great sources of information to share with patients. I think there's a, a balance to be struck in the consultation about, you know, explaining that this is a, a rare side effect, but an important one, but also, you know, allowing that person not to be sort of on on edge the whole time they're taking this or every time they take the pill and wondering, yeah. you know, I'm feeling sad today or I'm, I'm feeling a bit down. Is it the tablet, you know, and or maybe giving permission for them to kind of come back to you when, when, if they're feeling that way. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. And so, so challenging. So uh, it looks like we, we've kind of covered two, <laughs> two um, drug interactions and or one drug interaction, one adverse event, uh, pretty well today. I think we could come back to this again and, and some others. There's, there's probably some more around, do you think, that we could cover? I'm sure there are. And in fact, the B- doesn't, don't we, the BMJ, have a, a sort of relatively new series that's um, sort of dedicated to covering these adverse drug reactions and trying to convey some of this information that would make kind of consultations um, you're right you're right yes that is right Uh, and this this one on Montelukas was from that series so um, oh well there we go Well, thank you to Anders and Corinne for uh, those interviews today. And thank you to Sophie as well for um, getting in touch. Um, We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Uh, Until then, bye Navjoy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. Bye for now. And see you, Jenny. Bye. Thank you. Uh, Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and do leave us a a review and get in touch. uh, Practice at bmj.com. We'll see you next time. Bye for now.